invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19. And if you will stand, please, we'll share with you, uh, read with you together, read together the text of Scripture in 1 Kings 19, where we're headed this morning in our study of the Word of God. 1 Kings chapter 19, we'll begin reading at verse uh, 10 and read down to verse 18. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10. So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So it was... When Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his faith in his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave, suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of David, of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Israel, of Syria, I'm sorry. And also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Melah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth has, that has not kissed him. Let us bow before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege of being reminded of the need for souls, both hearing and unhearing. Father, I pray that your, our hearts would be yielded to you and be sensitive to the needs of those around us. Thank you for the victories that you have brought in the lives of those who know you as Savior. Sometimes hard-won victories, but in all of them, is through the work of Jesus Christ the precious work of his blood being shed upon the cross of Calvary as he died at our, as our substitute and purchased our lives with his precious blood. Father, I thank you for life that we have received as the guilty because of the life of the innocent. Thank you, Father, for the reminder today of the privilege of studying the word because you have given to us life in Christ. May this text live before us today. May we rejoice and help us to see some new nugget that is designed for our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, there are a number of threads that we have been pulling together as we've been doing our little study of great stories uh, that every kid should know. We've been looking at Elijah, and we've been looking at this text uh, in 1 Kings for a while now. But now as we've come to this time where Elijah comes to this story that so many of us know. He's in the mountainside at Sinai. He gets to have this experience of the exposure to God's presence, and he gets to hear the still small voice, and he has a sense of recommissioning before God. But there are threads all through this text of Scripture that we need to grasp in order to be able to understand this. You look at the text and you scratch your head and say, why in the world was Elijah running from Jezebel? He'd never run before. What would cause him to do this? 
Is he losing his courage? Did he lose his character? What happened? He's known as a man of prayer. But it's interesting to look through the scriptural text and to be able to pull the threads together that help us understand the story and what it amounts to. Why did he go to Horeb? The answer is not given in the text. Horeb is Mount Sinai. Why did he go? What was his reason for running? Why did he have to get there? I believe it's because of what had happened already at Sinai. Here's Elijah doing exactly what we do. We desire to be able to do big things for God. And God sometimes does use big events and experiences. Certainly this last week we saw the power of a hurricane. And we still are seeing that. We know what wind does. We know what storms do. We live here in Virginia. We know what earthquakes can do, don't we? And then we saw pictures of the fires that happened um, in New York as well. Devastation. You can just imagine the force of each one of these events, and yet the voice of God is where the power of God was to be heard. Now, he can use all these other things. He can use hurricanes. He can use earthquakes. He can use fire to do mighty things, and he does do mighty things. Just the change in the heart of one soul coming to know Christ is a miracle. But most of us don't experience those things in our lives. There's a reason for that. Elijah wanted to experience great and mighty things. He had gone and had seen fire come down from heaven and lick up the altar. He had gone and seen the people say, Jehovah, he is God, but they turned around and went home. And Ahab saw the same thing, but because he was an unregenerate, unconverted person, his heart couldn't process it in any way that was redeemable and redeeming. And so what did he do? He just ate and drank, and then when the rain was coming, he was happy and left and went home and told Jezebel everything Elijah has done, and Jezebel was angry. The people did not repent, but that was what Elijah was expecting. It's interesting to go through and thumb through the illustrations of Elijah in the scriptures in order to be able to grasp what was going on in his mind. We think in terms of the Elijahs. Of course, Elijah is known as this great prophet. In the New Testament, he's known as the prophet who prayed, and God withheld the rain. He prayed again, and God sent the rain. He was a great messenger. And God uses Elijah as the illustration of John the Baptist. John the Baptist died in prison. He was beheaded. How many people had been converted? The one for whom he had prepared the way was to die upon the cross. It would look like, in the world's eyes, a failure. But it wasn't. His job was not a failure. Uh, of course, Elijah is the one who meets with Moses at the transfiguration, just before the Lord is crucified. And they discuss the things he's about to do. Elijah had a significant place there in that, in that communication. Peter was so impressed, he said, let's build a temple for all three of you. The suspicion is that two of the witnesses that are in the book of Revelation that come and call fire down from heaven and they ultimately give up their lives in the book of Revelation during that tribulation era when you have the beast and the false prophet and all of those terrible things occurring, they are going to be there. One of them may very well be Elijah because these two prophets do things like Moses and Elijah were used of God to do. How many people repent? 
We don't know. They end up dying in the streets of Jerusalem, and then God raises them on the, uh, after that, and all the world sees and fears. It's interesting to go through the Elijahs of Scripture and scratch your head and say, what is God teaching us with this text? Elijah was expecting something that God was not going to do at that moment. And so Elijah runs to Mount Sinai because Mount Sinai has been the place where God shook the earth where God's fire fell on that mountain, where the voice of God rumbled. And he comes to that cave and it appears to be the cave where Moses as well had been. It's obvious to me, and I hope to you, that he was looking for some big change that God would do and he wanted to come to God and yet God hadn't done that and, God, and so he comes to him and says, Lord, what's the value of my life? He says, I have done worse than my father's. I have done, I've got nothing left to show for what I've done. Isn't it interesting that we think the same way too? Lord, do something big and mighty. Lord, do something that is so obviously of you. And he is, but we, it's not always the way we expect it. And so if you and I were to sit down and take a vote as to where we would think the presence of God would be seen, which one of those four events would you pick out? Would it be, as we look down in verse 11, God says, Stand before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks. And tore into the mountains, broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. I'd vote for that. Hurricane came through New York. Lord, bring people to Christ. He may. I'm trusting he will. But an unregenerate heart, just because a hurricane comes over it, is not going to turn to Christ without the gospel without God's work. I'd vote for that. Well, may, if it's not that, would you vote for the next one? And that says, and, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. Just the rumbling, the rattling around of this earth. They say in California, when the earthquakes happen, sometimes you can see the earth just kind of do that, that undulation. Can you imagine? You remember what it was here for our little earthquake. God wasn't in that. Would you have voted for an earthquake? And then he says, after the earthquake, a fire. The fire that crackles and whips and, and, and its tongues lick out. Was God in that? No. Instead, we find the still small voice being given. It's interesting when you see the word small. Uh, that is the is same word that's used to describe God's provision for Israel of the manna in the wilderness, this small, round thing. They called it manna because they didn't know what it was. But God fed the people with this small thing. God does great things with small things. And then that other word, the still small voice, still is the word that's describing a calmed water. The Lord says, peace be still. You find the word still being given, used in the book of Psalms, talking about the calmness that comes. I don't know about you, but if, if you're in this deafening roar of, of wind, a hurricane, after a while you get that, that still smallness has got to be hard to hear. I don't know about you, but an earthquake, the rumbling that goes on and the shaking and the, the shaking feeling you feel when it even stops, the floor is still moving as far as you know, because everything that was settled isn't settled any longer. Still small voice, the fire. It whips around and, and, and flashes. And then the still small voice. 
You know what it is to be in the stillness and the quietness that is deafening? I think that's what Elijah was experiencing. Now, interestingly enough, Elijah had gone night and day, and he comes to this Mount Sinai as we look to our text, the communion that God gives him in verses 9 and 10. Back in verse 9, it says very specifically, And there he went into the cave and spent the night in that place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? You take that phrase and you take it apart. What? What are you doing here, Elijah? What? What is it that you are here to do? What are you? Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? All of those perspectives give you an idea of God's reaching out to our hearts. And God will ask you that question many times throughout your life. What are you doing here? And you have to ask that question. It's a purpose question, isn't it? What is your desire? What is your goal? What is it that you want to accomplish here? Why are you here? Interestingly enough, Elijah can't escape God any more than Jonah could. He wasn't trying to escape God. I think he was going to be in the place where God had done some great things and to pursue God and ask God to do great things again. And so there he was, and God says, what are you doing here? Do you ever ask yourself that question? What am I doing here? I think it's, uh, we live in a day... And, of course, with the presidential election coming up upon us, I, I remember that, you know, as each president that I've observed through the years, there's always a desire for legacy. There's always a desire for a, a purpose or a reason why they existed. I think some of the presidents that are still living are asking themselves, why was I a president, in order to try to leave a legacy. I think they're, they're trying to, to picture that or, or leave some kind of, of meaning. What was their purpose? And we think back in history to Abraham Lincoln, and, we, and a lot of people will tell you that a person is, is, is made by their time. They're a man of their time. And so sometimes we think in terms of your life really becomes something that is molded, it is, it is given its purpose by the time in which you live. I don't believe that's true. I think you can have certain things that mold you, certain things that certainly are challenges, um, certain things will certainly show whether there's character. And so as you look at a president's four or eight years, you observe and watch what they have done, and you, you are left with this question of character. And I believe that if character was truly there, they do have a purpose. They do have a legacy, and it's established. But if character is missing, if godly character especially is missing, they struggle and look for a legacy. That, that's always the way it works. That happens with all of us, too. You are not so much designed by your time. You are not to be the one who is, that is made by your time. That's not what Christians are called to. And Elijah, I think, was wrestling with this in the sense of, Lord, I'm worse than my father's. I didn't have the success that I thought would happen. It didn't occur. <clears throat> and yet I do think that God does say that the challenges that come to us in our time are what show what kind of character God has built. And that's why I really do believe that society is made, it's, it's built by morality. But morality is built by character. But character is given its courage and its strength and its force by whether you know the Lord or not. Look at the dictators around the world. Look at the people who have been the bad actors in history. Thank God they don't live forever. You know, you read about Adolf Hitler. Oh, an awful person. But thankfully, he didn't stay on the world scene all that long. And his lack of character 
is what led to his downfall. That happens with all dictators, all people who, are, who don't have that strength of character that I truly believe has to come from the Lord. Believers, we are called to know Christ, to live with him, and let that knowing Christ inform your character. And your character will be tested, your character will be tried, it will be tried by the events around you or the lack of them, and in that trial of your character, out of your character will show your moral standards. And from that moral standards will show your, your, your society that you would seek to live and meet and minister to. And I believe, Christians, that it's not the events that shape you. It's the events that allow the courage and the character to show forth. So you may not be called to things like Abraham Lincoln, hopefully. But you are called to stand for Christ where you are. You may be looking for the earthquake and the thunder and the lightning, but God's just going to use you like the still small voice. Perhaps. Perhaps you are going to be designed for the times where the testing comes and your character must show through, and that character will be found to be like tried pure gold because of the character built upon Jesus Christ, because you've walked with him. So I think Elijah is wrestling with that, just like we wrestle with that kind of a concept. And what I also think is fascinating as I look at our text is the Lord asks that question. Then we have this openness from Elijah. So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. There is just this openness of conscience and heart. Look at the character of Elijah. God had destined him to do some amazing things, but it wasn't the revival that he was anticipating. That will come later, and God will be gracious with Israel. But that wasn't God's intent in Elijah's life. Elijah didn't know it until he went through this experience. In this experience, Elijah needed to learn that God knew what he was doing. And it was not at Horeb or at Mount Sinai where Elijah was supposed to be. He's going to be recommissioned. And so we find in the communion with God, this openness of Elijah's heart that is in no way hiding anything. There is this openness of prayer and it's refreshing. And he repeats it again, doesn't he? To the same level and degree down in verse 14. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. What is the purpose of this? Christians, you may be, being, may be asking yourself, what's my purpose in all this too? Well, look how God answers his question or his statement. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. I love those phrase, this phrase, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. In the history of looking at Elijah, every passage, the Lord God is the Lord God lives before whom I stand, he says, before whom I stand. And he says it repeatedly in the chapters that precede. Now God says, don't forget to stand before me. Stand before the Lord. Christians, you may be wondering or looking for a purpose in life. And what is God's intended plan in your life? Stand before the Lord in this world. Whether the momentous events come to you. Whether the challenging times or maybe the revivals come through you. That's not the matter here. The matter is stand before your Lord. And that is what we're all called to do. Stand. We look at our text and he says, stand before the Lord. But before he could even do that, the, behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. 
but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then you have the deafening silence. After the fire, a still small voice. The assumption, as we go through the rest of the text, is that's where the Lord was. And you look at this, and it's the Word of God that's the key, isn't it? It's not the events. As you go through the Scriptures, you will find that the events that happen, must, you must go to the Word to, find, to make sense of them. In the book of Psalms, uh, Moses is given the work of God, but then the events, the activities occur. And so the understanding of the activities comes from the Word, and that's always the case. Why would God bring a hurricane to New York? Well, let's go to the Word. Let's find out why He would do this. The Word gives the answer. Why would God bring the momentous events and then the not-so-momentous events into your life? Well, let's go to the Word. The Word is the key. I think it's interesting when we think about this um, revealing of what God does. These are all things He is fully capable of doing. He's fully capable of the big miracles. He's fully capable of the shattering, earth-shattering events. He's fully capable of the fire and the wind and the... And the earthquake, isn't it good to know that? But it isn't also good that he doesn't always act that way. <laughs> because if all the actions of God were earthquakes and fire and wind, what's left? But the reality, believer, is that what God does often is he speaks to his children through his word. It is going to be the still small voice. Some of you, being raised in Christian homes, you are being preserved from sin in your lives. And so you will not have the testimony, thank the Lord, that you were saved out of drugs or some other kind of terrible life-threatening event. You actually are saved out of those things, but you can't tell the story of it because you didn't experience those things because God was gracious. And so you're wanting the earthquake. You're wanting the fire. You're wanting those things that are so obvious and God gives you the same answer he gives everybody else. He says the key of salvation is the fact that it is bona fide, you are born again, and it's going to be through that still, small working of God in your life. Sure, there are earthquakes and there are troubles and trials. And thank God for those who have gone through those things and God has gloriously saved them. And so you get to sit back and say, wow, what a great God I've got. But what God gives to you is something just as powerful, and that is that the Holy Spirit of God ministers to your spirit, and that way you know you're His. Romans 8 tells you that. It's a quiet thing, many times. You go to the book of 1 John, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, you'll find three different times there's the evidence of the Spirit of God in the Christian's life that shows you you are His. The first one in chapter 3 talks about the fact that you're shown to be His because you obey His commands. But it is that quiet work of the Holy Spirit in your heart that's a daily, consistent exertion upon your soul that you're God's child. Thank God you don't have to go through earthquakes every day just to have the experience of knowing your gods. But when you struggle with it, go to the word, the still small voice. That's what God gives. God gives you that promise that you're his, that exertion upon your spirit, that, that conviction of sin, that, that openness of heart before the Lord. That is the ministry of the spirit of God upon your soul. So Elijah hears this voice. You know, it is interesting that um, I want to share this paragraph with you before I forget, because I'm, I'm kind of 
jumping ahead of myself in some ways as I go through our text. This comes from uh, A.W. Pink's uh, uh, commentary on this section of Scripture. He says this, We look at this incidence with the, the, the rocks and with the wind and with the, the fire uh, as a figure of God's ordinary manner of dealing, dealing with souls. For it is customary for him to use the law before the gospel. In spite of much which is now said to the contrary, this writer still believes that it is usual for the spirit to wound before he heals, to shake the soul over hell before he communicates a hope of heaven, to bring the heart to despair before it is brought to Christ. Self-complacency has to be rudely shattered and the rags of self-righteousness torn off if a sense of deep need is to fill the heart. The Hebrews had to come under the whip of their masters and to be made to groan in the brick kilns before they longed to be delivered from Egypt. A man must know himself to be utterly lost before he will crave salvation. The wind and fire must do their work before we can appreciate the joyful sound. Sentence of death has to be written upon us ere we turn to Christ for life. So God is fully capable of bringing that hurricane, that wind, that fire, that earthquake upon the soul. And often before you come to know Christ, there has got to be that crushing of the law upon the soul so that the still small voice, that healing of the Spirit of God might be brought. It's an interesting little emblem that he picks up as we look at this text of Scripture. The still small voice. Look at verse 13. So it was when Elijah heard it. They wrapped his face in his mantle. He know this is the presence of God, just like Moses. Went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? God's communion has led to a confirmation for Elijah. And now what's left? A recommissioning, a commission. Elijah repeats himself in his concerns, as we have read in verse 14. So verse 15, the Lord says this. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on the way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Haziel was going to bring punishment upon Israel until the end of his days. But Elijah was sent to anoint him as king of an enemy of Israel. He was going to be an instrument of God, as awful as it was going to be. Verse 16, Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and he was going to see the end of Ahab's household. And then he says, In Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mehalah, you shall anoint his prophet in your place. You know what, Elijah? Elijah, you have a commission. You have a purpose. You're not going to be the one who's the firebrand who turns Israel. There isn't any firebrand Elijah that does that in the rest of the scriptures. No, we find Elijah being formed, informed that he would start something. Just like the beginning of a dam that will break, it's got to be small. And here's what you're going to do. Here's where you're going to go. These are the people who are going to be placed in your place, and they will be raised up to do what you cannot do. But understand this, Elijah. He says, verse 17, It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. He's basically saying this. Destruction hasn't come because there are mine here within the land. They need to be refined. 
I have a plan and a purpose for them, but I will be gracious upon these people. In 2 Kings, we find these words in verse 13, verse 22, And Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. See, God had a plan and a purpose. It was not known to Elijah. Elijah had a preconceived notion of what he was going to do, but what God had called him to do is stand before the Lord. Elijah was assured that God knew what he was doing and that he was going to bring about the answers, but Elijah wasn't the one who was being chosen to do it. Chosen to do it. And so he has given this gracious instruction from God, a recommissioning. God will bring about a result. But what is Elijah to do? What's his purpose? Stand before the Lord. Believers, we go to the book of Ephesians chapter 6, and we're told our purpose there too, that we're to become strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And we're supposed to put on the armor of God. And in a day of adversity, having done all, we are to stand. That's what we're called to do. Now, God may do something great. There may be something where you are a product of your time as the world sees it because your character is able to shine through, but believers, your character is going to shine through no matter what, because God says, stand before the Lord. Your call, like mine, like all of ours, if you know Christ as Savior, is to stand before the Lord. Do you know what kind of a privilege that is? I don't know what God's going to do with you. He may be making you into a missionary for the next generation. He may be making you into a pastor. He may be making you into a faithful servant of God, just serving God, happy to do it with the talents and time and treasure God has given to you. You are not a product of your time. But your times will allow the character that God has built into your life to show forth. So stand before the Lord. What a privilege that is. If you don't know Christ as Savior, those crushing blows may be falling upon you so that God may heal where the wounds have been laid open in your life. Do you know him as Savior? Have you yielded to him as Savior of your life? Believers, what is your call? Stand before your Lord. Be thankful for the still quiet times where God ministers in an easy fashion upon your soul and lets you know you are His by the chiding, by the conviction, by the encouragement, by the lifting up, by the illuminating of the Word of God. But having done all, stand. I want to give you a few moments to turn to the Lord and worship Him in the quietness of your heart, recognizing that though you may not be called to great and mighty things as far as the world sees them, you're called to a great and mighty task of standing before your Lord. I'll give you a few moments to pray. Our gracious God, how we thank you for this marvelous text of Scripture. I pray that you would give us much light from it. I know that in many ways it's hard to come to a text without preconceived notions of what is being said, but I pray that you'll help us to have seen something new and fresh for our hearts and for our souls. May we see the commonplace lesson for our hearts, which is listen to our Lord, walk with Him, recognize we have a great and holy privilege. And may we, as the times come and go in our lives, 
stand before the Lord. Father, may that be a defining, resting, and conviction of heart. As we look to the word and ask, what would you have us do? May we, Father, look to you and know that first it begins with standing before you. What a privilege, what a high and holy calling. Father, I pray that you'll do mighty works in our lives today in conviction and comfort and encouragement. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.